how confident can we be that Jesus Christ actually lived? In a 2017 article in The Guardian, Simon Gathercole, a professor at the University of Cambridge, wrote that the historical evidence for Jesus of Nazareth is both long-established and widespread. Within a few decades of his supposed lifetime, Jesus is mentioned by Jewish and Roman historians, as well as by dozens of Christian writers. Compare that, for example, with King Arthur, who supposedly lived around A.D. 500. The major historical source for events of that time doesn't even mention Arthur. He is first referred to 300 or 400 years after he supposedly lived. The evidence for Jesus is not limited to later folklore, as are the accounts of Arthur. Well, let me address a few more important discussion points from this article. First, what do Christian writings tell us about Jesus? The value of Christian writing is that it is both early and detailed. First Christian writings to talk about Jesus are the epistles of St. Paul. And scholars agree that the earliest of these letters were written within the first 25 years of Jesus' death at the very latest. While detailed biographical accounts of Jesus in the New Testament Gospels date from around 40 years after Jesus died. Moreover, all these appeared within the lifetimes of numerous hundreds of eyewitnesses who lived to see Jesus' death and resurrection and provided descriptions that comport with the culture and the geography of first century Palestine. It's also difficult to imagine why Christian writers would invent such a thoroughly Jewish savior in a time and place under the umbrella of the Roman Empire where there was a strong suspicion of Judaism. Second, what did non-Christian authors say about Jesus? As far as we know, the first author outside the church to mention Jesus is the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote a history of Judaism around AD 93. He has two references to Jesus. One of these references are controversial because it is thought to be corrupted by Christian scribes. But the other is not so suspicious, a reference to James, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Then, about 20 years after Josephus, we have the Roman politicians Pliny and Tacitus, who held some of the highest offices of the state at the beginning of the 2nd century AD. So from Tacitus, we learn that Jesus was executed while Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in charge of Judea in AD 26 and 36. And Tiberius was emperor, A.D. 14 through 37. And these reports that fit with the time frame of the Gospels tell about Christ and the details of him. Pliny contributes uh, the information that where he was the governor in northern Turkey, Christians worshipped Christ as God. Neither of them obviously liked Christians, so Pliny writes that they were pig-headed, obstinate people. Tacitus calls their religion a destructive superstition. Strikingly, however, there was never any debate in the ancient world about whether Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. It was simply accepted. We know of no one in the ancient world who questioned whether Jesus lived. These abundant historical references leave us with little reasonable doubt that Jesus lived and died, that Jesus indeed existed in human history. But the more interesting question, of course, for us, which goes beyond History and objective fact is whether Jesus died and lived again. In our passage this afternoon, that question is the very question that the author of John's gospel aims for us to deduce. Is Jesus truly the Christ? Can this Jesus 
be the Christ. We're continuing our study through one of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John, which again is an eyewitness account of Jesus' birth, life, teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension during his life and ministry on earth. You can imagine why the record of Jesus' life and ministry is recorded four times, why it's important, since who Jesus is is the central question of the Christian faith. For these next few months, we are specifically focusing on the seven I am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And John's purpose for this book is clear to answer that very question, which is explicitly stated in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these, but these signs, these sayings are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In our passage today from John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52, we continue the account we looked into last week about how Jesus proves himself to be the true Messiah of God. His signs, his miraculous works, showed him to be more than just a powerful prophet. His sayings, the divinely authoritative teaching, showed him to be more than just a regular rabbi. But the question remained, is he or is he not the Christ? In a legal court case, there are different standards of proof uh, which determine the results of the case, preponderance of evidence, clear and convincing evidence, and the highest level, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And what Jesus shows in our passage, which I hope to argue to you, seems to be the highest proof of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt or overwhelming evidence. Yet some people are still not convinced. Perhaps some of you in here, in this very room, are asking that same question as well today. Can this Jesus truly be the Christ? In order to answer this question from our passage in John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52, I want to share with you four evidences which proves that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Four evidences which proves Jesus is the Christ. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, his incarnation. Point number two, his resurrection and ascension. Point number three, the Pentecost. And point number four, the division. Let me repeat that again. His incarnation, his resurrection and ascension, the Pentecost, and the division. I pray that through this word, you will come to know this overwhelming truth, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the way, the life, and the truth to God the Father. Now please look with me to John chapter 7, verses 25. Through 52, and follow along with your Bibles open throughout the entirety of the sermon as I read and preach from God's Word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say to him, Nothing. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. 
You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What evidence proves this Jesus is the Christ? Point number one, let's consider his incarnation from verses 25 to 31. His incarnation, verses 25 through 31. Uh, Look with me again to verses 25 and 26, which says this. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? If you recall last Sunday's passage from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, We learned how Jesus, in the middle of the Feast of the Booths, or the Feast of the Tabernacles, an eight-day worship celebration of the Israelites, a harvest feast, a joyous time of celebration when all of the harvest had been gathered, a time to commemorate God's presence with them during their wilderness wanderings, that Jesus suddenly appears. And what does he do? He appears in the temple in the midst of their seeking and begins to teach, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Micah chapter 3, verse 1. And the crowd of the people uh, gather again since they were all in that city for the feast anyway. And as they hear God's word, they marvel at his teachings, which had such awesome and divine authority, according to chapter 7, verse 15. Nevertheless, when we left off last week in verses 20 through 24, we see some in the crowd accusing Jesus of what? Of being demon-possessed. Why is that? Because they were fearful and they were defensive of their false accusations. And they denied even the plan that was plain for everyone, that they were seeking to kill him. Yet we see that they are, what, unable to do anything. The people ask, is this not the man they are seeking to kill? You see, according to their allegations, Jesus was guilty of two crimes, back from John chapter 5, for breaking the Sabbath and for blasphemy, which was the sin of reviling God. So Jesus, calling God his own father to them, was making himself equal with God and was blasphemous in their judgment. And both crimes were punishable by death, according to Jewish laws, according to Exodus 31.15 and Leviticus 24.14. But why couldn't they bring him in? Why couldn't they arrest him? 
How was it possible that Jesus was speaking openly and teaching publicly and correcting them even directly? And they say nothing to him. Why? The people rightly murmured. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The answer to this all-important question had to have been a resounding yes, or at least a very strong maybe at this point, a strong likelihood. You see, Israel had been devoid of God-sent prophets for over 400 years. And when John the Baptist came to the scene, he had everyone's attention. That's what we studied last fall in the earlier parts of John's gospel. It was clear to all of Israel that John the Baptist was God's messenger. Well, what was John the Baptist's message? John the Baptist announced that he was merely a forerunner whose purpose was to usher in and prepare the way of the true Messiah, fulfilling various Old Testament prophecies of Exodus 23 and 20, Isaiah 43, and Malachi 3.1. John the Baptist says of himself, I am not the Christ, but pointing to Jesus as Jesus was coming up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. Back in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And Jesus has been saying repeatedly over these chapters that we are studying and that we will continue to study. Whereas John the Baptist says, I am not, Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, I am that I am. Up to this point, the announcement of Jesus as the Christ by John the Baptist was known to all. The baptism of Jesus and the audible voice of God from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, was heard by all the people of Israel. Jesus' signs were not hidden, you see. Jesus' sayings were not made up or mythologized later in the years. His mighty works and his words were heard and witnessed and recorded and widely circulated. That he was unique, unlike any other prophet, unlike any other man. That he was exceptional, that he was divine, was unquestionable. That's why you'll notice four important questions in our passage, which puzzles Jesus' opponents. Because the answers to all these questions were plain for all, or will become plain. Verse 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 31, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? And verse 42, has not the scripture said when the Christ comes, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? We'll see how Jesus clearly answers all these questions and shows for us to determine whether or not Jesus is indeed the Christ. First, notice how the crowd deny the obvious, the legitimacy of Jesus as Messiah by questioning first his origin. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, there are many ironies, claims, or arguments which are contrary to the truth in our passage. But the first irony is this, but we know. They said it with such certainty, didn't they? We know where this man comes from. The crowds knew Jesus to be from Nazareth of Galilee. It was indeed the place where Jesus grew up and the place where most of Jesus' ministry took place. Hence, it was commonly understood that Jesus was from Nazareth. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem just before the crucifixion, the multitude cried out, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. When an inscription was put over Jesus' head on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Yet, we know all this time that the Jews were mistaken, don't we? 
that our Lord was in reality born in Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is one of the most significant prophecies of Jesus' birth, written some 700 years before Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. This all the more exposes the crowd's ignorance regarding the Messiah who wrongly argued in verse 27. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's clear that the people of Jerusalem either were really ignorant of their Tanakh, their Hebrew Bibles, or perhaps let's try to give them some sort of benefit of the doubt. Thirty years have passed between Jesus' birth and his public ministry. He evidently was from a lowly social status where his earthly mother and father, Mary and Joseph, were from a lower socioeconomic class. And they lived quietly in Nazareth for many years. And so maybe perhaps we'll give them the benefit of the doubt that most forgot uh, Jesus' birth origin was indeed Bethlehem. The far greater irony was that the people of Jerusalem not only did not know Jesus' true earthly origin, much less what they didn't know, and what they could not comprehend was Jesus' divine origin. That's why Jesus proclaimed in verse 28, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. That phrase, you know me, and you know where I come from, is actually better understood in the form of a question. You know me? You think you know me? You think you know where I come from? Jesus was alluding, of course, that they had no idea. Since the ignorance of the Jews' knowledge of Jesus' origin was obvious, Jesus tells them simply, you don't know me because you don't know my Father. You don't know God. You don't know His truth because you don't know His Word. Brothers and sisters, what searing words to those who claim to be religious, who claim to be teachers of God's laws, who were supposed to be the people of God, yet so illiterate of God's Word, is it not? Sadly, the situation has not improved much 2,000 years later amongst God's own people. A recent study in 2020 found that only 32% of Americans who attend a Protestant church regularly say they read the Bible personally every day. Evangelical Protestants, those who believe the Bible in its entirety, that it's true and without error, that's us, fared a little better at 36%. Dr. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, says the scandal of biblical illiteracy is our problem. The scandal of biblical illiteracy is the church's problem today. If they had known the scriptures, they would have known that the Messiah would have been born of Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2, fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew 2, 4-6. And they would have known that the Messiah's ministry would begin in Galilee, according to Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew 4.12-17. They would have also known that the Messiah would have been born of a virgin, as according to Isaiah 7.14, fulfilled by Jesus in Luke 1.35. If they had only known the scriptures, if they had only known the Bible, they would have known that Jesus had not come of his own accord. And the reason they didn't know is because simply as Jesus says, because they didn't know God. That's what Jesus says of them at the end of verse 28, does he not? He who sent me is true, and him you don't know. And Jesus says in verse 29, I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. Brothers and sisters, what is the evidence that this Jesus is the Christ? Look at verse 30. How even in the face of the Jews' attempt to arrest him, no one, 
Not a single person was able to lay hands on him. Why not? Because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was God in flesh. Jesus is God, the incarnate, come to fulfill God's plan of redemption of sinful man. Whether you believe it or not is up to him. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. But the fact that he came, that he was sent from God, that he tabernacled with us in the flesh to fulfill God's promises and prophecies cannot be debated. History cannot deny it. Scriptures testifies of it. And more overwhelming evidence, it says in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. What I mean to say is that his works were incomparable. His words were incredible. No one could touch him. No one could stop him. They were left saying, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Again, a great irony. Even until that point, what they have seen, what Jesus had shown was enough to convince thousands of people that this man was certainly something special. And yet, they could not even imagine. They didn't even yet see the greater sign that was to come. The purpose of the reason why Jesus came to earth to display the greatest sign, what Jesus refers to as the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12, 38, Mark 8, 11 through 12, and Luke 11, 29 through 36, Jesus' death and resurrection. These people could not even imagine what Jesus was about to do. Yet even still, it says, many, thousands believed on him. The point is made, is it not? What is an evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he came, and that thousands believed? Point number one. Point number two, what evidence proves this Jesus is the Christ? Point number two, let's consider his resurrection and ascension from verses 32 through 36. Now look with me again to verse 32, which says this. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The thought of people believing in Jesus as the Messiah was surely upsetting the Jewish leaders and frustrating them. And so you'll see something very interesting that comes up. They send temple guards to arrest Jesus. We call people who are persistent about the right things, worthy things, true things, tenacious, champions, determined. But we call people who are persistent about the wrong things, despite overwhelming evidence against them, stubborn, bullheaded, and obstinate. Well, these leaders, these Jewish leaders were clearly the latter. More evidence will show that later in the passage. Again, that's why they call for officers or temple guards to arrest Jesus. They couldn't win their argument just by simple scripture knowledge. So what do they do? They seek to lord their authority against Jesus. They call on the guards. Something funny happens to the guards later. But first, see how Jesus responds. He is in total control. Look at verses 33 through 34. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. How Jesus evaded the temple guards' arrest, we are not told. But one thing is clear, Jesus seems to be unfazed by the Jewish leader's ploy. Jesus continues to teach his people that not only did he come from God, but what he teaches is that he will also return to God. In case verse 33 and 34 are not clear, Jesus repeats this claim several times throughout his ministry. Earlier in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in verse 21, he explains Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body. And John states in verse 22, when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, 
his disciples remembered that he had said this. Other times in the Gospels, in Matthew 17, 22, in Matthew 12, 39, in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus speaks again and again of his own resurrection. Not only that, several Old Testament passages prophesy of the Messiah's resurrection. You could write these verses down. Psalm 16, 10. Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. Daniel 12, 2 to 3. Put all those verses together. And these are prophecies of how the Messiah, who is coming, will resurrect from death. Moreover, not only that, Jonah 1, 17 and Hosea 6, 1 through 2 even specifically hint that the Messiah would be raised on the third day. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, I want you to consider why Jesus' resurrection is such a strong evidence that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Because let's just say that Jesus was, as some argue, a complete crazy fool, a lunatic, a self-obsessed egomaniac who falsely claimed divinity. Anyone who is bold enough can claim that he was sent from God. I am the gift of the world. Anybody could claim that, that he was a gift to humanity. But to predict that he will die and that he will rise again, that's a next-level lunacy, insanity, that would most surely put that person's claims to the grave and keep it there for good if he actually doesn't rise up from the dead. How could any normal person claim and guarantee that he would die and rise again? This is why C.S. Lewis famously argued in his well-known work, Mirror Christianity. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said those sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The fact of the matter is, if Jesus' claims of his resurrection had not proved true, and Jesus did not rise again, I guarantee you nobody would be talking about this crazy person today. Nobody, much less thousands of people who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, would not give up their own lives to claim it otherwise. They wouldn't give their own lives as martyrs uh, to proclaim this crazy man's claims. This is why the doctrine of Christ's resurrection is the most important doctrine of our faith. This is why 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching, what I'm doing right now, is in vain. It's meaningless. And our faith, the Christian faith, would be meaningless. It would be in vain. The entirety of the Christian faith would have fallen apart if it was based on a lie. So brothers and sisters... The fact that Jesus' claims that he would go to him who sent him, that he would rise again, is the very reason we have gathered today. What an awesome privilege to do that. Amen? It is the very reason why thousands upon thousands of Christ's followers have been gathering together since the Sunday of his resurrection to worship him, to honor him as King and Lord for over 2,000 years. The Jews said to one another in verses 35 to 36, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, uh, you will not, you cannot come. Jesus repeats where he will go two more times in John's gospel, in John 14, 2, in John 16, 28. And so we know the answer to that question of where Jesus is going. It is also recorded in other passages in the New Testament from Mark 16, 19, Luke 24, 50 to 51, and Acts 1, 9. Not only that, again, even in the Old Testament passages, prophecies of Jesus' ascension is recorded, for example, in Psalm 69, 18, where we are told that Jesus would ascend into heaven to the right hand of God, back to the Father. If the point is made, you can believe it or you can deny it. What is an evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus resurrected and ascended back to the Father? Thousands around the globe, in every generation, all across the world, testify of transformed lives in Christ. We who were once dead, but now live. Amen? This moves us to our next point. How did this happen? How did the most wildest claims and teachings of an unconventional Jewish rabbi have the impact and influence it's had around the world? What is the evidence that Jesus is the Christ? Point number three, let's consider Pentecost. Pentecost, verse 37 through 39. Look with me to those verses again, which says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the last day of the Feast of Boots was the great day described in Leviticus 23, Numbers 29, and Nehemiah 8. It was the closing day of a week-long festivities, and Jesus, in a very dramatic fashion, stands up and cries out. Jesus stands up and cries out. Jesus stands up and cries out. Are you listening to what he's going to say? Okay. What was the meaning? What was it that Jesus wanted his people to understand and know when he stood up and cried out? You see, the eighth day was really a great day, distinct from the other days. It was the day of rest after a week long of celebrating. It was a day when the citizens of Israel would joyfully dismantle the temporary booths they had erected for the week of the celebration, a day of solemn reflection. You see, for the seven days of the feast, each morning, the Jews would gather in front of the temple, and they would come with a citrus fruit in their left hand. Is this right or left? Left hand, a reminder of the land to which God had brought them and of their bountiful blessing. And in their right hands, they would carry a lulab, a combination of three trees, a palm tree, a willow tree, and a myrtle, emblematic of the stages of their ancestors' journey through the wilderness. And each morning, all these people would gather together in front of the temple. And after the priest was sure that everything was in order, he would hold out a golden pitcher. And the crowds would then follow the priest to the pool of Siloam, chanting some of the great psalms and waving their lulabs in rhythm. And as they approached the pool of Siloam, the priest would dip his pitcher into the water and the people would recite the beautiful words of Isaiah 12, 3, the call of worship that Jeremy read for us today. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then the crowd would march back to the temple, entering through the water gate to the blast of the priest's horn trumpet-looking things, boom, boom, three times. And while the crowds watched, the priest would then circle around the altar once and ascend with the accompanying priest to the platform. And the temple choir would sing the Hallel Psalms 113 through 118 
And when the choir reached the climax, Psalm 118, every male Jew would shake the lulab in their right hands and raise the citrus fruit in their left hands, and they would all cry aloud, give thanks to the Lord, three times. And as the finale, the priest would pour the water as well as the wine into their respective bowls. This was literally the daily event during the week-long feast of the tabernacles. The water pouring in the ceremony was to symbolize a foretaste of the eschatological rivers of living water foreseen in Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 13. It was the anticipation of future coming messianic blessings that the Messiah would bring. And they were celebrating and they were praying that God would soon bring this age, that God would soon usher in this age. It was then, on the eighth day, when all the customary traditions and cultural festivities had ended, Jesus stood up and cried out in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus' pronouncement had a very clear meaning, you see. He himself is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. If Isaiah invited the thirsty to drink from the waters of the wells of salvation in Isaiah 55.1, Jesus announces, He is the one who can provide that living water. He himself was the fulfillment of Isaiah 12.13, the ultimate well of salvation. And Isaiah 44.3, which said, I will pour water on the thirsty lands and streams on the dry ground. And Ezekiel 47.1, the water flowing from the threshold of the temple. He, Jesus himself, would be the living water poured out in whom every thirsty soul who seeks him would be quenched. Brothers and sisters, do you come here this afternoon thirsty? Do you come here this afternoon hungry, weary, and tired, and parched from the struggles and the troubles of this life? Jesus gives you an invitation. His promise has already arrived when he came to the earth. Drink, drink deep of the living waters. Verse 39 says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was, of course, speaking of the day of the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of the living God would be poured out to believers in fulfillment of another prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. If Jesus was a mere man, and if his words were heard and witnessed and recorded, circulated within just few decades of his life and death, if Jesus was some lunatic, some crazy fool, how could his predictions have had such impact and influence that would spark such a movement around the globe, which would eventually turn the world upside down within just a few centuries? And you know what? That movement, that spark has not stopped even until today. Even 2,000 years later, that small movement has turned into a global movement, incomparable, come on, incomparable to any other religions in the world. Why? Because every other religion is about the same thing, man getting to God. But Christianity is the fact and truth that God came to us in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ no other religion can offer. This is the power unto salvation. It's the best news you will ever hear. Hallelujah. That in His holiness and love, God created all things for His glory and for our good. Yet man, though created in His image, we are not created perfect, you see. We are not created good apart from God, you see. 
That's why when we willingly choose to distrust God and choose our own glory over God's, we were separated from God, incapable of saving ourselves ever by our own works. But God had a plan from the very beginning that a people would come to know the depth and width and height of his great redeeming love. That's why even despite our ongoing rebellion against him, Scripture says while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus, who was truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died as a substitute on the cross, and he suffered the punishment of God's wrath we should have suffered in eternal hell. They buried Jesus. They closed up the tomb. They thought the story was over, but it wasn't over, you see. Jesus rose again on the third day. He defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. Hallelujah. And he invites us. He invites all to believe in him so that in his death we would die, that in his resurrection we may be born again into a new life. You see, Jesus wasn't God's backup plan, you see. Jesus wasn't a surprise, you see. Jesus wasn't some fabricated folklore of the Jews. They hated Jesus. They killed Jesus. Jesus was God's promise and prophesied Messiah. Hallelujah. For thousands of years, the way in which he would be born, how he would live, how he would teach, how he would die, how he would rise, when he would rise, how he would ascend, how he would return, all had been written in this book. And all of it fulfilled through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. If you are here this afternoon and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I want to ask you, what is your source of truth? What evidence do you seek? What evidence do you need this afternoon to convince you that there is more to this life than flesh and bones? How much more proof is necessary than 4,000 plus years of history that points to this one man, Jesus? How much more evidence do you need than billions of Christ followers and believers of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue who worship Jesus Christ as the Lord. How much more convincing do you seek than the hundreds of pages of this ancient book that speaks of his infinite love for you and for me? Sorely wounded as we are, sorely wicked sinners as we are, having lost our way, still he calls us to be his own. If you hear his voice today and you're not a Christian, calling on your name, do not Harden your hearts, the Bible says. Repent of your sins, which means to turn from trusting in the worldly gods of today. Believe this gospel that I shared with you. Believe that it's for you, that Jesus came and died and rose again for you. And trust Jesus today, right now, in this moment, as your Lord and your Savior. Don't let another day pass by, brothers. Don't let another day pass by, sister. As human beings, we are always worshiping something or someone whether it's a person, yourself, or something else, whether it's a thing, money, careers, sex, health, whatever, what owns your life? All these things can be taken away in an instant. Do you consider yourself to be invincible? You, just like 100% of the population of humanity, will die someday. And when you face that dreadful day, descend into eternal hell, or will you stand confident and joyful in the eternal congregation of the righteous to experience pleasure forevermore. Which do you choose? Which do you desire? Because only those who are covered by the cleansing blood of Christ and covered by his righteous robe, the robe of Christ, can stand in that congregation. The choice is yours. The invitation is open to you right now. Choose today who you will follow, who you will worship. Dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, have you this week pondered upon the powerful gospel? 
Have you this week shared this glorious grace to others? This week, Jeremy and I, I don't know where he is, got to hear through the membership interviews seven different testimonies of how our gracious God revealed himself to our new potential members. We're, we're voting on them today at our members meeting. And each of them shared about their different backgrounds, different experiences, each of them uh, experiencing painful hardships in life. Yet Christ revealed himself and allowed them to overcome all obstacles. Not a single one of them would say today, yeah, if I had a chance, I would choose money, sex, career, relationships over Jesus. Not a single one. Why not? Because Jesus is better than all. Jesus is greater than all. Amen? You know what the common thread is in all of our friends coming to join us as members? Someone share the good news with them persistently, regularly. Somebody pray for them. So if you get anything from this sermon today, this afternoon, be reminded and be encouraged afresh that the gospel, only the gospel, is the power unto salvation yesterday, today, forever. Know it, grow in it, proclaim it boldly. What is the evidence that Jesus is the Christ? Fourth and finally, division. Division. Verses 40 through 52. Contrary to what we are comfortable with, Scripture is clear that Jesus came to divide. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verses 43 to 44. It says this. So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. All of the clearest observations from those verses is that Jesus was sovereign and in control over the situation. No one laid hands on him. And the funny thing that I brought up about the temple guards earlier in verses 45, 46, you see what happens. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring them? And how did the officers answer? No one ever spoke like this man. You see, the officers were sent to arrest Jesus, but they were mesmerized. No one ever spoke like this man. And so at the risk of insubordination, they returned empty-handed. They cannot help themselves. This man was amazing. This man was mesmerizing. Why? They were convinced Jesus was more than just a mere man, more than just a regular rabbi, more than just a prophet. You see in verses 40 and 41, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this Christ to come from Galilee, debated among the Jews? Of course, the ignorance and the misinformation continues to hinder are those who question Jesus' identity. You see that in verses 40 and 42. Is this Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Again, the irony, as we read the scriptures, is obvious and blatant. Jesus is the offspring of David. Jesus does come from Bethlehem. But would that fact be enough to change their heart and heart to faith? Would it be enough for you to believe? That's the question for us to answer was all the evidences. If it's all provided to you, is that enough for you to have faith? Do you ever question George Washington's birth origin? Do you ever question Abraham Lincoln's hometown? Well, why do people find it so hard to believe Jesus was the one from Bethlehem? You see, much like the meaningless debates of today when we debate which religion is right and which religion is better and true, which goes nowhere, we find the Pharisees' unwillingness to believe even against overwhelming evidence. Verse 47, they say to the temple guards, have you also been deceived? And you see their perpetual unwillingness and hardness of heart in the following verses. Have any of the authorities believed in him? Right, they're, they're pushing it, they're pushing it. And what do we see in these verses? Nicodemus raises his hand. He says, hey, me, who we saw in chapter three, 
pops up in verse 50. In 51, it says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? The question isn't as helpful. So the Pharisees respond, even more pushing their agenda. Are you from Galilee too? Do you have something going on? Are you guys collaborating on something? You see, they were even willing to turn on their own to defend their case and their accusations. And you see the extent of their hardness against all evidence in the final verse. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What they were saying was, even if he, the Messiah, is from Galilee, make sure that it isn't so. Again, another irony. In verse 49, the Pharisees are so fed up with everyone being convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, says in verse 49, but this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. The very people they were supposed to shepherd and teach and lead, they say these people are damned. Jesus came to earth to divide the true followers of Christ and the false followers. In Luke 12, 51 through 52, Jesus says, do you think that I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Yes, of course, it's true. Jesus came to bring peace among men with God. But let it be clear that some will believe and some will not. So let me ask you the question again. What evidence would convince you that Jesus is the Christ? Scripture, history, and the church testify of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus isn't some petty or pitiful religious guru trying to convince you to believe. He is the creator of the universe. He is the redeemer of souls. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is our master and our lord. Trust him and worship him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to you this afternoon. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the overwhelming evidence of your incarnation, of your resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit that gifted us to know you and to understand your difficult truths. And Father, even the division, the clarity that you bring to this earth, that some are saved and some are not. But Father, here in this room, the invitation is for all. All who hear his voice can respond to receive salvation today, right this moment if they would repent of their sins, believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, and trust in Him, Father, the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, thank you for the reminder that you are sovereign and in control over all things. Help us to be reminded afresh the power of the gospel that works in our lives and in our hearts, and help us to boldly proclaim it, Father, as members of New Covenant Baptist Church, so that many will come to know you and be saved in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name.